following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Judea. Uh, He was a real person, right? And uh, we call this doctrine, the big word for it, is the incarnation, right? That somehow God, in his infinite being, took on himself human flesh, like real life humanity, and lived it out from beginning to end. Um, So that John 1.14 tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Um, so, so that's what the incarnation is. But uh, kind of the more important question is, why, you know, why did he come? What was the significance of this incarnation? And, of course, uh, probably most of you can answer that. Right? Why did Jesus come? Right? So that he could obtain for us salvation. Uh, and that certainly is a true answer. And, um, you know, he came ultimately to die on the cross for us. Uh, short answer, easy answer. Uh, but what I find in my own life is that uh, those facts can leave me quite unfazed, right? I can know those things, but they make sometimes very little emotional impact on me. And as we celebrate Christmas, especially as we think about the Incarnation, uh, I think if it doesn't impact us deeply, it's a good sign that we know it to be true, but we know it only superficially, right? We only know it at a very surface level. And uh, there's reasons for that. It's because the, the real doctrine of the incarnation is extremely complicated, right? How, just how is it that God, who's infinite and eternal, could take on human existence, well, I'm not even going to try to answer that question because it just hurts my head to think about. And as I've wrestled with this all week, I've come to the realization that it is a very difficult doctrine if we want to go deeply into it. It's easy on the surface. So, yeah, Jesus became man. He was born in a stable. Um, you know, he built furniture. I can picture that. But what it really means in its full scope and depth is a hard doctrine. Uh, but it should be one that impacts us, right? It should be one that, that makes us stand in awe and wonder at, at what it meant for Jesus to become human. So I want to try to, if not explain it, at least look a little deeper and hopefully give us a, a bit more sense of awe at really what it meant for God to take on human flesh. And the, the reason this is not all that like sensational for us is because we live every day in human flesh. None of us go, wow, it's so amazing to be living around, you know, in this body. In fact, this morning when I got out of bed, like I heard in 10 different places, and there was nothing all that impressive about it, right? Um, so so let's, let's try to unpack this a little bit. And to do this, I want to look at um, not, not your typical um, Christmas passage, but I, one that I think is very much one of the most profound Uh, explanations of the Incarnation in all the New Testament. And that is Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. We're not going to look at the whole chapter. Uh, We're going to look in general at verses 5 to 18. We're going to skip kind of one one part. Um, So let me read as you follow along. 
starting in verse 5. Now it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. And skipping down to verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Um, Let's uh, unpack these verses a, a lot in here. We're not going to cover it all. My, my hope was to talk about why the incarnation was necessary and then to look at uh, what it matters. Uh, I'm not going to have time to do both. So I'm going to focus primarily on, on what really was the incarnation and why was it necessary. And I'll try to touch briefly on how it matters to us today. Um, First of all, so, so the, nece the necessity of the incarnation. Why was it necessary? Why, why is it Jesus had to take on human flesh? Well, the first reason um, the writer of Hebrews tells us here is that through it, through the incarnation, Jesus has fulfilled our God-ordained purpose. He's filled our God-ordained purpose as human beings. Uh, let's back up a little bit. Uh, and uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes a psalm, Psalm 8. And it's a psalm that uh, we read through, and it's confusing. I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I read through it ten times. I'm like, okay, not getting this, right? So let me unpack a little bit this psalm, as I believe the writer of Hebrews intended us to understand. He quotes, it says, It's been testified somewhere, and I'm telling you where. It's, it's Psalm 8, okay? Uh, what is man that you are mindful of him? Right. What, what is man that God should pay attention to us? Do you ever wonder that? Do you remember that question? Why, why should God notice you? Right? This planet that's just a speck of dust in the universe with some, whatever it is now, six billion people, or I don't know, a lot of people. Uh, and who are you? Right? Who are you in this huge crowd that God should notice you? Right? Uh, or, the, or, the, or that God should care for him? In verse 7, he says, but you made him, God made us 
for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. Um, If you look back in Psalms chapter 8, David is wrestling with two things. First of all, he comes before God and he sees the glorious majesty of God exalted in heaven. And he contemplates this God who's powerful and big and created everything. And then he looks around at what God has created and he sees the universe. He sees the sun and the moon and the stars and um, looks up in the sky at night and sees just these billions of stars. And he feels the incredible smallness of what it means to be human. You know, between God on the one side and his majesty and the universe on the other, and then in between is, is little man. And he's struck with this question, what is man that you pay attention and notice him, that you care for him? Uh, but then he turns and he gives the answer. He says, well, our, our life does have meaning and purpose because God created us with a great destiny. God created our life for purpose. And this is really some amazing stuff. He says, uh, man was, was firstly, um, for a short time, only for a short time, a little lower than the angels. Right? In other words, of all, the, of all that God created... Man is exceeded, he's, he's outranked only by one of God's created beings, and that's the angels. And that only for a short time. Right? Someday, we have a destiny that tells us someday as human beings, we will even outshine the angels. Such is, is the worth and value of us in God's creation. Right? We were created to be great beings, splendid beings, glorious beings. Uh, And not only that, but he says he has crowned us with glory and honor. Um, God has given us a declared worth and value that is immeasurable. We have been given by God himself a certain honor and glory and dignity in what it means to be human beings created in God's image. There's nothing, C.S. Lewis said, there's no such thing as an ordinary person. There's no such thing... It's just common people. Human beings were created and bestowed and crowned with glory and honor from God. And thirdly, he says in this that, that all things were, play, were, were subjected under our rule. We were created by God to rule over things. Right? And we, we get this, right? Because we like, we like ruling. Right? Now, be honest. Be honest, right? Anybody here not like being in charge of stuff? Right? Uh, we, we, we like our realm of authority. And it begins very little in childhood as children want to take control of their life and their environment. We were made to rule, right? And it's not sinful to want to rule. It is how God created us. And, and notice what he says here. Not just that we made to rule some stuff, right? Uh, not only do I get to rule over my toys, but I get to rule over your toys as well. Because it says, it says we, God has put everything in the universe under our control, has subjected everything. He says there's nothing outside of the universe, nothing out there that was not intended to be under our control and dominion. So that's pretty cool. That's what, that's what we are created and intended to be, beings of incredible worth and glory, 
to rule, to have dominion, right? to be someday greater than the angels, which means you know, it, goes, it goes God, angels, humans. Someday we get to outrank uh, angels, it gets to be God, us, right? Very top, right? That's who we are. And so that's why, first answer, that's why God notices you. Because God created you to be the very glory of his creation. But then the, the writer of Hebrews cuts, breaks off from the psalm and he inter, inter, interjects his own little commentary. Very short few words at the end of verse 8. But significant words nonetheless. He says this, But at the present time, now, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Okay? So God created us for this. He intended us for this. He purposed us for this. But guess what? Uh, and you, you may have noticed this. Have you noticed this? That the world does not obey you. Like your children don't even obey you, right? Much less the world. Your wife does not obey you, right? And, and your husband, wives, your husband doesn't obey you either. You know, we're just not very obedient, right? Um, we don't see this happening. Well, why? Well, of course, we know the story. We know that God created us and intended us for this, but Adam and Eve really messed it up for us. And as our representative in our place, they were given a choice to follow God or follow Satan. And we know what they did. They followed Satan. And by doing that, they put themselves not under God's rule, but they put themselves in, in Satan's power. And he now rules over us and vicariously now is um, ruler over the earth, right? We, we handed our dominion over to Satan when we sinned. Um, and God has, has allowed that to be. And so creation is no longer listening to us very well, right? And it's really frustrating for me. Uh, this morning I got up and my house was just, just swarming with mosquitoes, Right? And, and I wanted to be like Gandalf. Remember that, that scene in Lord of the Rings where Gandalf is standing on this bridge in the bottom of some deep, deep cave, right? And uh, the, the, the monster, I forget what it's called, the Molagroth or something, this, this mo- mo- big monster with a cool name is coming after them. And, and uh, Gandalf stands on this bridge as everybody else is fleeing away. And he stands between the, the hobbits and this monster, and he says, you shall not pass. Remember that? That's what I want to say to mosquitoes. Said there, you shall not pass. Doesn't work, right? They pass. They just swarm right by me. Shoom, right? Swarm around me. It's frustrating. Uh, dogs bark, and they, they do not listen. They don't shut up when I tell them to, right? Last night, I'm trying to go to sleep, and dogs are barking. And I've got my windows open because it's so nice and cool outside, right? So it's nice to get some cool air, but I can't because the dogs are barking. And I say, then be quiet. Shut up. I'm in control here. I'm sovereign. God gave me power over you. Shut up. Right? Doesn't work, right? And have you ever tried this in a face-to-face encounter with the dog? Have you ever tried this face-to-face? Stop, right? What do they do? It's like they go crazy even more. Even more and more, right? Right? Uh... We lost control, right? We lost those things. And not only do we no longer have dominion, and we see that, but because of the fall, we have, we have fallen from glory. We have turned the honor that, that God gave us into shame. We have become slaves instead of rulers. 
And we've brought on ourselves death in the place of life. Right? And as we were talking this morning, we lost peace. Right? We lost peace with God. We lost peace with the world. We lost peace within ourselves. And so even though that has how God has created us and intended for life to be for us, it is not the life we live. And it's put human beings in a terrible position. Um, and this is, this is where we live. We live in the, in the midst of two great realities that put us in a, in a terrible bind, a trap, if you will. On the one side, we have this deep sense and understanding that we were created for great purpose, for honor and glory. Right? We know that we are not just average. We're not common. There's a sense about human beings that we know we were created and intended and designed for glory. But we all die. Everybody comes to the end of life at the point of death. And death is empty and meaningless, right? And I'm not talking about as Christians, but I'm talking as man in the world. Man is fallen being. Death means your life has no glory. It has no meaning. Ernest Becker, who wrote the book, uh, The Denial of Death, a great book if you've never read it, he says this, man is literally split in two. He has an awareness of his own splendid uniqueness and that he sticks out of nature with a towering majesty. And yet he goes back into the ground a few feet in order to blindly and dumbly rot and disappear forever. It is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. And that's really the dilemma that David struggles with in Psalms 8. Right? It is the sense that we were created for glory and greatness, that we should, we should be so much more than we are, but we die. We die. Um, and it is also really, uh, I believe, what drives us to sin. What drives, what, what gives temptation power over our life. And it works like this. We, we know that we were designed for greatness. We know we were designed for glory. And we see it everywhere, right? Uh, we ask the average uh, five-year-old what they want to be when they grow up. And they will always pick something that to them they see as heroic, right? So that's why, like, firemen and policemen are often first-time options. Now, they could pick other things, but I'm telling you what they, what they are identifying is that they're saying, when I grow up, I want to be a hero, I know sometimes it's, you know, I want to be a famous singer, I want to be a dancer, I want to be an actor, uh, I want to be the president or the prime minister of my country, right? I want to do something meaningful and great and significant because we're driven to that. And as we grow up and no longer five, but we're 15 and 20 and 25, we realize that for me, being the president is probably not going to happen, right? Um, and, and many other options are not there for me. But we, we want to be somebody to somebody, Right? We want to be somebody's hero. We want to be great and famous, at least in our own eyes. Right? And, and that's what drives us to uh, the self-centered, narcissistic need for glory, for the selfish pursuit of my own ambitions and my own needs and my own wants. I want to be the center of the universe. But it's a twisted version of glory because it's self-centered and it's, it's, it's um, rooted in fear, right? It's rooted in fear. And the fear is this. The fear is that 
I will come to the end of my life and I will face death and I will be put into the ground and I will be just a nobody. I'll be just a nobody. And if you don't believe this is true, just go to Egypt and look at the pyramids, right? The ancient pharaohs built these humongous monuments, right? Humongous monuments because they did not want to go into death and be a nobody, right? They wanted glory. They wanted to be somebody. And so, um, so we know we were made to rule, uh, but we see where you live in a universe that is no longer su- just subjected to us. Every barking dog and buzzing mosquito just makes us angry. And we know we are marching to the grave where we will disappear and life will, our life will be erased, meaningless and empty. Uh, given our sinfulness. Uh, but uh, the writer goes on, to, uh, and, and there's hope in this, and he says in verse 9, But we see him, that is Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And here's the principle. Uh, Jesus became a man, became human, took on human flesh so that he could fulfill God's purpose for, uh, for humanity. Right? He came to show that this is what it means to be human because we've so messed it up. Right? We so destroyed the glory God intended for us. But Jesus came, took on human flesh to fulfill Man's created and designed purpose to have glory and to rule. Um, and it says he does this, um, being made a little lower than it, the angels. He, he, he took our place. He came and took that position, that status that from God was above the angels, way above the angels. And he subjected himself to a place where he's now a little lower for a short time, lower than the angels. Uh, and he may be lower than the angels only for a time, but the wording here uh, proves that Jesus was human forever. Right? When he came, not, not, not before the birth, but after the birth, from that time on, right, Jesus retained human flesh. So when Jesus died, rose again, went to heaven, he didn't eject from the body. Right? He didn't lay aside his human flesh and resume his former state. He is even now today in a body, glorified, but nonetheless a body like you and I. Um, And his glory came by tasting death for everyone. We're going to talk about that in a minute. Um, But uh, what we need to see is that Jesus fulfills human destiny. right? And it's because of Jesus we have a hope ourselves of fulfilling the destiny God has for us, of having glory and dominion over the world. Second thing, uh, in the incarnation, Jesus achieved our God-intended perfection. So first, our God-intended purpose. Secondly, our God-intended perfection. Verse 10, For it was fitting that he, that is Jesus, I'm sorry, that's not Jesus. (laughs) It's fitting that he, God, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, 
in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Right? So he says it was, it was right, it was appropriate, it was the way it should be that God, who, by whom and all, for whom all things exist, should uh, make the founder of salvation, that's Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now there's a huge problem in this verse, and if you're kind of a little theological, do you know what the problem is? And you may kind of see an issue, an issue here. You're going like, this should raise like red flags. Like, whoa, buddy, what's he talking about here? Anybody know? Uh, how is it that Jesus could be made perfect? Okay, that, that should raise all kinds of red flags because, um, because being made perfect could imply that there is some imperfection. Right? So as the writer of Hebrews is saying here, well, Jesus really wasn't perfect. And so he had to come to earth and he had to be made perfect so that he could be the founder of our salvation. Uh, it's kind of like it's kind of like Photoshop, right? Uh, any of you ever taken pictures and learned the wonder of Photoshop? It's great. In Photoshop, you can take your normal self with all of its imperfections and you can fix them. Right? Uh, if you're overweight, no problem. Photoshop can fix that. If you're ugly, no problem. Photoshop can fix that, right? Don't have any hair? Photoshop can fix that, right? And you can Photoshop things. You can, you can take out all those imperfections and you can modify it so that the picture is perfect, even though you are not, right? Well, is that what he's saying here about Jesus? That Jesus needed to somehow be Photoshopped, right? That God had to Photoshop him and get rid of some imperfection. Well, obviously not. Uh, God is perfect. Jesus, as God's son, eternal second person of the Godhead, is perfect, Right? There's no imperfection in him. So the writer of Hebrews cannot mean here that Jesus needed to, need to overcome some imperfection. But it says he, need, he did need to be made perfect. But really the sense here is not in the sense of overcoming an imperfection, but rather putting him to the test to show and to demonstrate that he is perfect, he, that he is truly righteous and morally good and true and perfect. You see, it's more like instead of Photoshop, it's more like the chicken test. Because you know what the chicken test is? My son-in-law works with an aviation company and he puts really expensive top-secret gear on, on, on military aircraft. And uh, when, they, when they do this, and he, I know, he, most of the stuff he can't tell us what he does it's all classified and top-secret, but uh, he sent me this fun picture this one day of a piece of equipment that they had installed on this plane. And they have to test it to make sure it can, as Richard knows, it's got to, it's got to survive collision with a bird, right? It's got to pass. It can't, it's got to survive impacting with a bird. So they have this chicken cannon, right, that they put frozen chickens into, and they fire frozen chickens at this device. And I'm thinking that's got to be the funnest job ever. <laughs> I want that job, right? I want to be the chicken cannon guy, right? Um, and he showed me the picture, and I don't, I'm thinking, I don't know if it passed the test. To me, it looked like it did not pass the test, right? It looked to me like it, it broke. Um, well, it's, it's true with you know, just virtually everything we use, right? It gets put to the test to see if it can survive use, if it can survive the normal wear and tear, if it can, if, if it can stand up to life. And if it can, then they, they'll guarantee it. And they'll say, we, we guarantee that it's, it's survivable, assuming you use it according to you know, what it's used for, um, and that it, it passes the test. Right? 
And that's really what's pictured here of Jesus. Here's the reality. God, as infinite being, could never sin. Right? It was impossible for him to sin. It's so beyond his character and nature. He couldn't even entertain the idea or concept of sin in his mind as, as an option for him. But this is what it means for Jesus to be incarnate. He took on human flesh. And human flesh living in this world is given, even without a sin nature, and his human flesh was not sinful. It was not given to the sinful nature that we have. But nonetheless, as flesh, as a body, living in this world, he is presented with options and choices just as Adam was. And the options and choices are this, to, to follow God and obey him, to use our body, his body, in obedience to the Father, or to use his body for other purposes. In the incarnation, for the first time ever, God was presented with the option to sin, with the very real potential reality to fail, to choose wrongly. Uh, and, and, and we cannot, and I think sometimes we, uh, we, we miss the reality of this for Jesus because we assume, well, he was the second person of the Godhead. He could not sin. Yes, he could not sin as God. In his flesh, he absolutely could sin. It was for him a real potential possibility, just like Adam and just like you and I. Um, so uh, Jesus had to go down a path, a road where, in which moral perfection must be achieved and gained, not simply assumed. That's what it means. Right? Moral perfection had to be achieved, attained to, rather than just assumed. And it means, that, therefore, that Jesus had to face, had to be tested with every imaginable temptation that a human being could encounter. Uh, later in Hebrews 4, he says he was tempted in every single way as, as us. Right? He had to face every single temptation that a body and a life and a human will and human thoughts and human emotions could encounter. Now, that may not seem like a big deal to you and I because we, we do that every day, right? We face those temptations every day, and it's really not such a big deal, right? You give in to the temptation and it goes away. No problem, right? <laughs> isn't, that how, isn't that how we do that? I'll be honest now. Is that not how you deal with temptation at least some of the time? It's how I deal with it, right? It's easy, right? You give in to the temptation, big, huge chocolate ice cream fudge sundae thing, you know, 10,000 gazillion calories. You just eat it, and it's over, right? That, that wasn't an option for Jesus, right? If he was going to pass the test, he had to resist every temptation every day, every moment from, uh, from boyhood to the cross. And so uh, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says that he... God saw it fit for the founder of our salvation to suffer through temptation. Right? Jesus didn't just suffer on the cross. Jesus suffered every day as he was bombarded with human temptation. And again, for us, this isn't a real big deal because honestly, I, I'm tempted, I sin, I feel a little bad, I, I confess, you know, I move on doesn't really tear me up all that much, right? Because for me, sin's just not that big a deal. My, my character is tainted. I am fallen. Not a problem for me, right? 
But for a holy God for whom sin is revolting, for whom sin is horrible, to be, to be even confronted with it, to even have to deal with those choices every day for God was horrible. Right? For Jesus was painful. It was a suffering we, can't, we really can't imagine. Right? It's a suffering we can only faintly, vaguely grasp. But that's what it meant for Jesus to be human. Right? And not only to face that temptation day after day after day as it piled and mounted upon him and as the pressures of it squeezed him. And they were real pressures. Right? Real pressures. Imagine the struggle for a being whose nature hates sin, but all of a sudden he is entertaining temptations, entertaining the thoughts of what it would be for him to not be obedient. And we see that most powerfully in the garden, right? Before the cross where Jesus is agonizing with temptation to not go to the cross. And he's pleading with the Father and his flesh is suggesting, you don't have to do this. And he wrestled and suffered in ways that we can't imagine. That's what it meant for Jesus to take on human flesh. To really enter into our struggle, but to enter into it in a depth and a level uh, none of us have ever encountered. So do you... Do you struggle with sin, right? What are the addictions in your life that plague and haunt you? What are the temptations that constantly uh, are in your face, right? Uh, Is it a suffering to resist those? It is, right? It is a suffering. It is hard, right? But God said it was fitting. It was necessary that Jesus, if he was going to be the founder of our salvation, the word there really means a pioneer, a trailblazer, if he's going to blaze the path forward for us to escape from sin and temptation, then he had to go through it exactly the way we must. He had to start at the point where we are with our human flesh and walk down that path. And so he did. And lastly, uh, the third thing that the incarnation means uh, is that Jesus took our God-inflicted punishment. The incarnation meant that he was able to take our God-inflicted punishment. Verse 14, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, that is us, you and I, we, we possess flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, the same flesh, the same nature, uh, the same human nature, not sinful nature, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, in every respect like us, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to take on our flesh simply so he could die in our place. That's what it means. We talked about this some last week, so I'm not going to elaborate a lot. But propitiation means to satisfy God's rightful wrath and judgment on sin. The only way, uh, and the point is that God's wrath had to be satisfied. Sin had to be punished. And the only way Jesus could take our place, could be our substitute, is if he took on all of our humanity. And so he did. 
He became fully human, fully man, um, so that he could be uh, the propitiation of our sins. What, what that means is this. The propitiation of sin, the, the, the wages, the penalty of sin is what? Death. Death. The wages of sin is death. What is death? Okay, death is not simply that our heart stops beating and this body stops working and our spirit leaves the body. Okay, that, that is death. But the Bible calls that actually sleep, right? But the death he's talking about here, the spiritual death that comes on through sin, is, being, is ultimately separation from life. It means being cut off from God. Uh, we are, because of sin, cut off from God, outside of the light of his presence and his love and his goodness and grace. We are far from him. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they immediately died meaning they were immediately separated from God, cut off from his presence, no longer living in the light of his, and beauty of his glory. They were cut off. Uh, the, the penalty, the wage, the, the only way that our sin could be propitiate, propitiated, could be paid, is that there was a, the need for a sacrifice that would be cut off from God's presence. Well, Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, uh, as very essence God, you know, as being God, as being one with the Father, it was impossible for that to happen, right? In heaven, in the Trinity, there's no way God could cut off himself, could separate the Son out. It was impossible, right? The only way that could happen is for Jesus to take on human flesh. And while in nature, God the Father, God the Son were never separated, God never, Jesus never stopped being God on the cross, but in his flesh, in his human existence, in his human condition, he was cut off from the Father. And when Jesus suffered and died on the cross, God turned his face away. Right? And Jesus was forsaken by the Father. And, and the wrath of God, the judgment, the cutting off, the separation, the isolation, the death that we all live in, Apart from God, Jesus took on himself. It says, it says earlier, he says that, that he became flesh that he may taste death. It means experience fully death for everyone. For everyone. That's what it meant for Jesus to become flesh, right? To take our place uh, so that we could be uh, what God wanted us. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.